Good afternoon and welcome to today's uh, learning. What we're going to be talking about today is what is courage? And what does it mean courage? And looking and reflecting from this week's Torah reading. So, there's once this guy comes over and of course, as we see, Jewish people always want to solve the world's problems and especially the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And this fellow comes over to me and says, listen here, what are we going to do about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in just 30 years? If you look at the demographics that are going to change, the Arabs are going to overpopulate the Jewish people, the Jewish people are going to be the minority, and this is going to be a very difficult, terrible situation. What does Judaism say about it? What does the rabbi say about it? What does the rebbe say about it? And how do we deal with the Palestinians? Should we fight them? and get rid of them now while we still have the numbers? Should we just move out of their locales? How should we deal with this, this Israeli-Palestinian demographic changing phenomena or disaster that may happen? And of course, every single Jewish person looks around the land of Israel and says, one second, if we look around, around, if we look around the land of Israel and we start seeing what's going on, there is, first of all, besides they're all different opinions, the right, the left, and the center of how to deal with it, but the, uh, you know, the growing phenomenon is that the Jewish people are the minority of the world, and as we continue to be the minority of the world. And of course, if you look in Israeli politics, the left is going to tell you that because of that, you have to give away territory and just let the Arabs live in their place, and of course, we know the fallacy in that, because the more we walk out of territory, the more Hamas ter territory they gain, as we've seen with Gaza and other places and so on. And the right argues we got to just continue fighting. And what's the reason? Because if we don't fight now, that means we're giving up already now and our security will dwindle and or whatever every other situation that's going to be. And the argument continues to brew and continues to go on. But of course, we know that our task here today is not to discuss Israeli politics or not even to solve Israeli politics, even though we already before the class started to solve all the problems. But what are we going to talk about today is how do we deal with any challenges, whether a challenge which is coming up today or a challenge which is going to be in three years from now and 30 years from now, and how do we deal with it? Just let's take the land of Israel as a, an example. So of course, we're worried about the demographics that are going to happen in the land of Israel. We're worried about what's going to happen in the future, but everybody forgets that in the land of Israel, there is more than just the Jewish people about the land of Israel. The land of Israel also belongs to Almighty God. And he is the ultimate boss. He is the ultimate partner. He is the one that has the veto power over it. And if you want to take the land of Israel, the land of Israel, which is called God's palace, God's beautiful land, which was given as a gift to the Jewish people, why don't we just look back 70 years ago at the land of Israel, where the Jewish people's demographics in the land of Israel was way smaller than the Jewish people are today. The land of Israel at the time was less populated, less developed, less economically everything less, if you want to call it, and they had Arabs from all sides while the world was against them. And who would have thought that 70 years later, take any country in the world, any nation in the world, any city in the world that had that amount of rockets, missiles blown at it, and is not only today not running away from society, but today is on the highest level of development in economics, in weaponry, in defense, in any level in, in technology, Israel at the forefront of all of them. 
So if any person's going to try, try to figure out and say, how does this work out? We always have to remember of our most important partner in the land of Israel, that is God. And he's the one that ultimately protects us and will always be there to watch us. But what does this mean when we talk about fear? When we talk about difficulties or challenges that come our way, what's the way to overcome challenges? As one says, as the usual saying is, you need to have courage to overcome challenges. But what does it mean I need courage? What does courage give me? What does courage do for me? And there's different ways that people have courage and different ways that you're going to describe what courage is. Courage, does courage mean that I don't recognize the danger? Does courage mean that I'm just oblivious of the danger? I just, I'm beyond it? What does it mean that a person has courage? And what does it mean that a person gives their dependency or has faith in God? Does that mean that they don't look at the reality on the ground or they're not living in a real life? And as we see, realistically speaking, when you look at the land of Israel, let's just use that as our example. The land of Israel is sitting there amongst nations of the world who are wished demise. And not only does it not disappear, but it thrives. The land of Israel does it not recognize its danger that it's on the side of the people of them. So take for a moment when we define courage. A young teenager speeding in his car at 100 miles an hour in his brand new Corvette. Is that courage or is that recklessness? Is that not recognizing the fear or is that just a being oblivious of the fear? I'm sure everybody would agree that is recklessness. It's because this teenager is probably smoking something and therefore is oblivious of any fears or is just being a reckless teenager. But when a soldier goes into war, fighting for his country, why is that courage? Does the soldier not recognize the fear, the danger that he's putting his life in? But he recognizes that notwithstanding his fear, there is a greater mission and there's a greater cause which gives him the impetus and the ambition that he should want to overcome that fear that he has. So he recognizes the fear, but he, so to speak, he pushes the fear aside. What we have over here is two different types of ways of people having courage. Number one is the reckless teenager who is oblivious of the fear, or the soldier who just pushes aside the fear for something of a greater cause. But then there's a third way of what we call courage. One who recognizes the fear, knows the fear, but is not afraid of it. And that is the highest level of courage. That as much as my heart is pounding, and as much as I realize that this is a difficult thing, I recognize that this is fear, I recognize that this is crazy, but then I also know that I have how to deal with it, and I am able to deal with it. They say a fascinating story, I'm sure you probably heard of it, there was a fellow, Chris Hedfield. He was an astronaut, a Canadian astronaut, he was in went to NASA. And as he saw in uh, one, while he was in the um, in the space shuttle, he was looking, you know, while he was all up there in the moon or in outer space, 400 kilometers above Earth, and he's looking around and he's looking what he has to do, and all of a sudden he starts seeing little drops gathering in the space shuttle. Doesn't know what to do. That means there's moisture coming in. There might be a little bit of a problem here. He decides, you know what, let me just ignore it. 
Let me just be oblivious of it about it. What am I going to do? I can't fix it, right? But all of a sudden, he recognized that he starts feeling a little bit of wetness on his eye. Now, that doesn't make sense because in that space, there's no gravity. So therefore, there can't be any moisture and there was no wetness. So because there was no wetness, the tears did not become tears that would just drip down. They congealed and they went into his eye and they caused him not to see. He contacts, he says, hey, NASA, we got a problem. Houston, we got a problem. I can't see. All of a sudden, they're thinking, what can they do? And they tell him what to do. They go into, he goes into his um, suit where he's able to get some oxygen. And because of that, the tears then liquefy and he's able to see again. They asked him, what did you go through at that time, that moment, while you thought you weren't be able to see? And he says, I'll tell you what. When you're up there in outer space and you start seeing this terrible problem, you think all of a sudden everything is going to fall apart. And then you start looking at yourself and you say, one second, I'm also my fall apart. Who knows what can happen to me? I can get a heart attack. I can get some type of stomach bug. Who knows? Something else that can destroy the person's body. But then I realized, you know, the eye is only one limb in the entire organism of the body. And if I'm blind, it's going to be one entity, one thing I'll have to deal with. So I'll figure out how to deal with that one thing. Deal with the problem, recognizing the issue, not being afraid of the fear, so to speak, is what kept him in the right mind. When we talk about courage, in Hebrew, the word for courage is omits. It has almost the same amount of words as emunah, which means faith, belief in God. Meaning that the way that we are able to have courage is recognizing and putting in perspective that realizing that it's all in God's hands. Not that I'm oblivious of the fear. I recognize this may be a very hard time, but that doesn't paralyze me. On the contrary, that propels me to embrace the faith that God has given me. What does this have to do with this week's Torah reading? This will help us understand something that the Nachmanides asks a very obvious, and if you want to call it silly, maybe question in the beginning of this week's Torah reading. This week's Torah reading, we read about the spies that were sent to the land of Israel. We know the story that after the Jewish people, as they finished getting the Torah from Mount Sinai, they're heading their way towards the land of Israel, and all of a sudden the Jewish people tell Moshe they want to send spies to check out the land of Israel. What does Moshe do? He says, sure, no problem. You have it in the first text that goes through the whole story, but I'm not going to read it inside. Then the whole story tells us how the Jewish people are ready to send spies to the land of Israel. And Moshe says, go ahead, send spies. And they send spies, 12 people, one from each tribe. Yeshua and Kalev do their own thing, while the other 10 spies come back giving this negative report about the land of Israel. God is furious with the spies and therefore punishes them that for the next uh, 40 years, every year 15,000 Jews died while they were in the desert. Every Tisha B'Av besides the last 15,000 that on the 15th of Av were speared and they were able to go into the land of Israel. But what did they do wrong? What did the spies do wrong? Nachmanides asks. They didn't lie. Moses tells them, go check out the land. And what do they do? They go check out the land. Moses tells them, come back and tell us. Is it strong people or weak people? Are they sitting in fortified cities or in cities without walls? 
They come back to say, yeah, they're very strong people. These are the nations that are there. What did they do wrong? Wasn't that the mission they were sent for? Even more so, Moshe himself comes and Moshe is the one who suggests that they send spies. They say, we want to know what the land of Israel is like. Moshe says, and as the story as the Medrash says, imagine somebody wants to come and buy your car. So you say, I'm only buying the car if you don't take it on a test drive. What's the likelihood of you buying that car? Probably not. I mean, the example that Rashi gives is a donkey. If somebody says, I'm going to let to sell you the donkey, but I'm not going to let you ride it before you buy it. Most likely, you're not going to buy the donkey. But if a person comes along and says, here, you want this donkey, you can even try it, the likelihood is you might not even try it because since the guy is so willing and he's so open about it. The same thing is also Moshe thought, if I'm going to start telling them, hey, oh, no, no spies are allowed to go to the land of Israel. What are they going to think? What's he hiding? But if I say, send spies, all you want, they'll say, okay, great. He must be really confident that the land of Israel is good and there's nothing to send spies for. Unfortunately, they decided also to send the spies as well. But even after they decide to send the spies, Moshe guides them, as we saw in the beginning of this week's Torah reading. He tells them, go from the south, look from the north, look what's happening there, check about the city, see what's going on, and therefore come back and tell us what to do. What do they come back after 40 years? They go and check out the whole land of Israel, and they come back with this beautiful report, or not so beautiful report, saying that the land of Israel is too strong, the enemy is too strong, we're not going to be able to overcome them. And over here the question is again, why does God get upset at them? And God now starts saying, this whole generation, you don't deserve to go into the land of Israel. What happened? What did they do wrong? Moshe said to check it out. They come back and they gave their report. You want to not hear their report? He's in denial of the facts. It's like you're telling somebody, please go to the store and tell me if they sell tomatoes. And you come back, they sell tomatoes. What do you do? I told you, but there's nothing you asked them to do. And therefore, Nachmanides at the beginning of this week's Torah reading is stumbled, And he says, what was the sin of the spies? What did they do wrong? The question even goes a step further. If you look in the book of Deuteronomy, Right before Moses is passing, Moses is warning the Jewish people of how they have to get ready to get into the land of Israel. And what does Moses tell the Jewish people? Deuteronomy chapter 9, he tells them, Listen Jews, you're about to go into the land of Israel where there's great nations, stronger than you, fortified cities, they can attack you. And you're going to ask yourself, how am I going to be able to overcome the giants? Moses uses almost identical words that the spies use when the Jewish people are about to enter the land of Israel. First of all, why is he scaring them? Secondly, if it was wrong for the spies to say it, why is it good for Moses to say it? And we don't see that God gets upset. Moses is saying the exact same thing to the spies. We don't see anywhere where Moshe comes along and says, or God reprimands Moshe. Why are you denying the Jewish people? Why are you putting bad things into their mind? Even Moshe himself re reprimands the people of God and Reuven when they didn't want to go to the land of Israel. But Moshe himself uses the same terminology. To make the question even a little stronger is that these spies, when they came into the land of Israel, the Talmud tells us, what did they see going on there? So the Talmud says, if you look at the actual words, it says they saw it's a land that eats its inhabitants. 
What happened was that God made that many people should be dying at the time. So like this, nobody should be distracted. And they should all be distracted and they shouldn't see the spies that are there. But the spies saw it as like a curse. Look, you come to a place every day, there's another 50 funerals, must be something wrong here. Must be a plague here, pandemic, who knows what. But what else did they see? The Talmud tells us, if you look in the verses, and they used, the Jewish people, the spies, use this terminology. They saw us here as grasshoppers. And they are stronger than us. What is that word, they are stronger than us? And the Talmud says a very fascinating thing. That the spies, when they came into the land of Israel, one of the things that they come back and report to the Jewish people, what they saw, is they saw the giants. What does it mean, the giants? The children of the giants, actually, is the terminology that they use. And the terminology for giants is they call them the Nephilim, those that fell. The commentaries, Rashi, says, what does it mean, the Nephilim? These are the giants, the sons of Shamchazoi and Hazoel, who fell from the heaven in the time of the generation of Enosh. What are they talking about here? Who are these people? So if you go back to the book of Genesis, you recall that there were giants that were created in the time Og was a giant, for example, and there were different giants. And they were destroyed when it came to the time of the flood. However, when it came to the time of the flood, and there were many people who were misbehaving and God wanted to destroy the world, some of the heavenly angels, destructive angels, told God, look, man's doing a terrible job. Why don't we come down here? And they fell from heaven, so to speak, and then they married into human beings. And that's where these big giants came from. And they survived the flood. Like Og was one of the people who survived the flood. Now the spies come into the land of Israel and they see some of these people who are left. And they look at them and they say, one second. If these people who survived the flood are still in the land of Israel, how are we gonna get them? That means if God couldn't wipe them out even though they were so wrong, during the time of the flood, what makes us think that we're going to be able to kill them? And at this point, they said, we can't do it. We're not going to be able to overcome them. So the spies seemingly had a legitimate complaint. Meaning that over here, when they were talking about where Rashi comes along and explains to us and says, that says, these are people that are, so to speak, even stronger than the punishment of God. They can withstand any punishment. Why do I think that I can get them down? And therefore, these spies, they weren't only saying it from a practical aspect, that their job was to interview and to interrogate and to see and to spy. That's what they were called, to see the land of Israel. And they came back and they gave that report. But even on the most mystical level, they saw these heavenly angels who were, so to speak, not, or, or if you want to call it, immune to any retribution from God. And therefore they were worried again. How are we able to overcome them from a practical, from a spiritual, from a mystical? It's impossible for us to overcome these people in the land of Israel. And that was the exact job that Moses gave them, to check it out. So why then were the Jewish people punished? So to understand this, we're going to look at this and learn from the story of the spies two basic lessons. One, a very practical application to see what their mistake was and understanding Nachmanides' words, but even more so how this applies in our contemporary life. And the biggest mistake that the spies made was not what they said, 
but was how they said it. And here lies the most important lesson that we can learn anytime it comes to talking about anything. They say one of the reasons why people should not communicate by text is because you don't have the emotion behind it. You can say the exact same thing, but it's all how you say it. And I remember there was once a story, there was this guy that used to say a story about this fellow who embarrassed somebody in the synagogue and he said that he is a ganif, that he is a thief. So the rabbi called him over and said, how do you get up and say that he is a thief? That's not nice to say something. So he says, I didn't say he's a thief. I said, he's a thief? It all depends in, the, in the, what tune do you say. Then. Everything it has, it's how you say it. Yes, these spies were selected to go to the land of Israel, report on what they see there, find out what's going on, if it's strong, if it's weak, if there's open walls, if they're broken walls, if they're fortified walls or not. That was all wonderful. But what happened when they came back? When they come back, what do they do? They start making press conferences. And you make a press conference and to say, oh, this happened and that happened, and you put all the props and all the different things behind you, and you create panic. And you create fear. And I'm sure today's day and age, you don't have to need any examples of what kind of press conferences create fear and panic. And you start showing examples and you cherry pick the certain things that you want to say in order to get, you know, what they told, call today clickbaits or whatever it may be, to want for people to stir up the emotions of people. And that's exactly what they did. They said, they came to the land of Israel. And they understood, yeah, we came to the land of Israel. And we saw the giants there. But what did they say? But we won't be able to overcome them. Who asked you if you could or not? That wasn't your decision. You're not the military, you were spies. You were sent to see what's there. Why are you creating panic? And they brought props, like today's data. Big graves, big pomegranates. Look how gigantic everything is. We're not going to be able to do this. It wasn't what they said. It was how they said it. There's a fascinating story about a student of the Maggid of Mizrich. His name was Yaakov Shimshin of Chiptekeva. He was planning to move at the end of his life to the land of Israel. And eventually he did. He lived in Tiberias. But first he went to visit to get the place settled for his family. And only then was he going to come back and bring his family back with him to Tiberias. He goes there. And on his way back, before he comes back to town, like a, the town right before his, he went to the hotel to freshen up, to relax and to eat and everything else. So one of the people in the, ta in the tavern there asked him, I said, Rabbi Yaakov, I don't understand. Aren't you excited to go back to your family and bring them back to the land of Israel? Why did you stop here to rest up? Why don't you go home, rest up in your bed, and then work it all out? Rabbi Yaakov Shimshin says as follows. He says, don't you realize that the trip wears you out, makes you tired, makes you, you know, it's a difficult trip, especially back then. If I'm going to come to my town, all worn out, what are people going to assume? Oh, look what Israel does to the guy. Makes them all worn out, makes them all weak, makes them all tired. They're not going to blame that I traveled. They're going to say, look, he just went to Israel and look what he came back looking. So therefore, I'm going to freshen up. I'm going to look well, fresh, energetic. I'll come back home to say, look what the land of Israel does to the guy. It makes him energetic and everything else. It wasn't what he was going to say. They used to say about public speaking. They say, 
45% is what you say and 55% is how you say it. There's nothing that nobody listens to what, you, how, how you, what you're saying. It's how you say it. That's the big difference. And this is what the spies made a mistake. And in fact, if you look in the first Rashi of this week's Torah reading, Rashi asks a, an interesting question. He says, why is the story of Miriam put right before the story of the spies? Last week we finished off the Torah reading where Miriam spoke about Moshe's personal relationship with his wife. God was upset about Tim's gossiping, her gossiping to her brother Aaron. And because of that, she was struck with leprosy. And the question that Rashi asks is why is the story of the spies placed right after the story of Miriam? Now, what would you say? What's the obvious reason? Because they happened one right after the other. Last week, Rashi didn't ask why this story is placed after this story. Generally speaking, when it's out of order, then Rashi will tell me, you know, it's out of order because the Torah is not in chronological order. But it makes sense, the obvious thing, that if the story of Miriam happened on the 28th of Sifan, and two days later the story of the spies happened, makes sense that they should be right after each other. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, Rashi chronicles that actually this was a story of events. So what's his question? Why did the story of the spies placed after the story of Miriam? Because they happened one after the other. Like, what's the question? Not only that, Rashi goes on to explain the story, why it was done, because they should have learned from Miriam. Why are you schlepping Miriam into the spies? Why is it Miriam's fault now that the spies didn't do their job? Or did their job a little incorrectly? What did Miriam do wrong? Okay, Miriam did something wrong that she spoke about her husband's personal life. She cared about her, husband, her brother's well-being. And therefore she spoke to her other brother about her other brother's well-being. Maybe it wasn't her business, and so on and so forth. What does that have to do with the spies? But over here, Rashi is telling us a very important line. What was Miriam's fault? Wasn't the fact that she cared about her brother. There's nothing wrong about caring about your brother. There's nothing wrong about talking to your brother about his personal life. But that's not why she was punished. The terminology that Rashi uses why she was punished was al iske because of the business. Meaning, because of the way she went about it. Not because of what she said, because of how she said it, what she did about it. That means, if you got a problem with your brother, walk over to your brother in a nice, respectful way and tell him what your concern is. Why do you have to go mumble to the other person, talk to that person and make it a whole story? And then God comes along and says, hey, I know what you're talking about. Who give you the right to go start making stories about your, my, my favorite fellow, Moshe? You have a problem with Moshe? Go talk to him about it. It's like the story about the woman who looks out her window and she says, oh, the neighbor's laundry is so stained. They must not know how to wash their laundry. Then the next day she looks at and says, oh, finally they figured out how to clean the laundry. Her husband looks and says, no, I just cleaned the window. <laughs> We always believe that the problem is the other person. We never think that maybe my glasses are tinted. Maybe I'm not seeing the right color. Maybe I'm the, I'm the one that's got the problem. <clears throat> and that's what happened with Miriam. Miriam believed that Moshe was the problem. And Moshe says, everybody had God speaking to them. And what does God come along to? No, you're the problem. Because you went around gossip mongering together with Aaron and saying, oh, look at Moshe, look what he's doing. 
And this is exactly the same problem that the Miraglim had. The Miraglim, the spies' problem was not the fact that they came back speaking about the land of Israel. That was their job. They were supposed to speak about the land of Israel. But the problem was how they believed that all of a sudden the Jewish people won't be able to overcome it. How they all of a sudden decided what the outcome would be. How they made a whole press conference and making a whole show and saying that Moshe was lying to them and about the difficulties and of how they would be able to conquer it. It was how they went about it. It wasn't what they said. Just like Miriam that they didn't learn from. Which brings us then, what is, what is this any different than Moses? Because look what happened. What's the difference after Moses finished his words and after the spies said their words? The spies come along and say, it's a great nation, it's very strong, it's powerful, they live in fortress cities. And because of that, we cannot go into the land of Israel. Moshe says, it's a strong nation that you've never seen before. They're sitting in fortified cities that you've never imagined. But you got God on your side and therefore you'll be able to conquer that. You see the difference? It's how it's said. It's what is said. It's what's the ultimate message of it. And this is the difference when we talk about, you know, take for example, a king builds a palace. Why does a king need a palace? All the people, all the constituents of the king, they know about the king. What does he need a palace? Because a king is so great, but then once you come to the palace, or you come to the capital, you all of a sudden see, wow. You see the prestige, the oomph, the greatness, the ability that the king has. And that's why the king invests the most in his palace, or that's why the capital is the most, you know, invested type of building. The same idea is also when it comes to the land of Israel. The land of Israel is, so to speak, the capital of the world. It's the place where God says he watches it every single moment and every single time. And therefore, as a person that lives in the land of Israel, they're able to believe in God in every single aspect of their life. And why is that? Because if you look around, one of the things that the land of Israel is unique about, besides for the fact that the land of Israel is one of those that one of the only lands that does not have oil in the Middle East, even though it had in David, in, in the Sinai Desert before they gave it away in Camp David. But the land of Israel is one of the only lands in the Middle East, in that whole area, that does not have a water source, a direct water source. It has the Kinneret today, but beyond that, what does the Kinneret depend on? Rainwater. The Nile River is in, is in uh, over there by the, what's it called? In Egypt, the Euphrates River is by Iraq. Then in Turkey, all the different cities and countries around there have their own water source, so to speak, natural from the seas, the Mediterranean filling, into, filling them up. The land of Israel is one of those that is dependent on rain. Why? Because the very fact that a farmer has to depend on rain, or the very fact that any person has to depend on rain, what does that give them? And a forever conscious belief that, God, that they depend on God. You can't be independent. The land of Israel, by default, gives a person a conscious reminder that without God, I won't be able to survive. If you think about it, take the history of the land of Israel in the last 70 years. There is not one country in the world, one nation in the world, that was exiled or kicked out of its capital and never came back to it. Tell me one nation in the world that its capital was destroyed and it came back. The land of Israel, its capital destroyed once, 70 years later again, 
I'm sorry, 420 years, 70 days it was built and then 420 years later it was destroyed. And then we're back. And back and flourishing. In the land of Israel. There are more Jews today living in the land of Israel than probably ever before. Why is that? It's because it's God's palace. It's a place which breeds miracles. They say in the name of Ben-Gurion, he said, if you want it, the miracle of the land of Israel is reality. If you want to be a realist, then you look at the miracle of the land of Israel. Even take for example, take for example what happened during the Gulf War. 39 scuds in 1991. 39 scuds fell on the land of Israel. Not one person was killed because of it. Not one. So of course you have those people that came along and said, you know what, the reason is because, uh, you know, this happened because scuds are not accurate and missiles are not accurate and therefore it didn't hurt anybody. So what did God do? At the end of the Operation Desert Storm, I don't know if you recall, one scud fell in Saudi Arabia and 38 Americans were killed. If it's not so accurate, how come over there 38 people get killed? You know, it's a story about this, the king or the, 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 prince bring, the king brings a prince and he, would, you know, he did something wrong, he did an infraction and he's hitting him lightly, not gently, hitting him, hitting him, hitting him. All of a sudden, the last one he gives him a zit, and he hurts him really bad. So the prince looks up at the king and says, I don't understand. If you love me, then why did you hit me so hard? And if you don't love me, why did you even hit me to begin with? Why did you hit me so soft in the beginning? Hit me always hard. So the king looks at him and says, I hit you because I had to hit you. But because you would think, ah, big deal, what's the hitting? It's a little tap. So I had to show you what you could have got, so you should appreciate what you didn't get. Same idea as you can look at the scuds. God over here made the Americans, 38 of them in Saudi Arabia were killed with one scud, that we should appreciate the 39 that fell in Israel and nobody got hurt. But when we see the miracles that happen in our life, because sometimes we get so accustomed to miracles, we don't appreciate the miracles in our life. And therefore, when we look at a place and we look at this type of unbelievable event that happens in front of our life, and every single day as it's unfolding, all of a sudden we start to appreciate, and it gives you that ability. Europe, America, all these other places have natural resources of water. But God made the land of Israel should always be dependent on rain, so that we should always have that conscious belief in God. They say a fascinating, there was a story, his name was Ephraim Milan, you can look it up online, he says the story in an interview. Ephraim Milan was a uh, very big activist in the beginning of the uh, settling of the land of Israel. And he was, uh, he was a very, he was a person that was involved in manufacturing. And one of the things they wanted to do as they were settling the land of Israel, we're talking about 1950, you know, just out of 1948, they just had the state. 1950 was trying to give the people a right after the war jobs. It was full of immigrants that were coming there to give them jobs. And also to build up the infrastructure and the economy in the land of Israel. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to start building cars in the land of Israel. So they reached out to Ford, who is the very big American motor company, and asked them to open up a branch in the land of Israel. Now, I'm sure you remember that Mr. Ford himself wasn't... Uh, the nicest guy towards the Jewish people. So the moment the Arabs threatened, the Arab League at the time threatened to boycott Ford, he was more than happy to back out. So they didn't know what to do. And this fellow, Ephraim Milan, was looking now for a new investor 
who would be willing to put a company, a manufacturing company in the land of Israel. He found a company at the time, which was a French uh, company, Kaiser Preiser, at the time who was willing to, Holland, I should say, it was a Holland company that wanted to, that was willing to put up $2 million, which is today is probably around $250 million, and that he would find private investors to put up the other $2 million for them to open up a factory in the land of Israel. Um, and, and that was the agreement. It comes to signing the contract, and all of a sudden those private investors that were supposed to invest, he says they showed up for the cocktail, but not for the contract. And he didn't know what he was going to do. Where was he going to get this money? And he was completely at a loss of what to do. He couldn't sleep at night. He was really going crazy. He remembered that when he was in Russia, his father, whenever they had a problem, they would go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe in Russia. And he said, if that's what my father did in Russia, he happened to be in America to be able to sign the contracts and everything else. Let me go to the Rebbe. At that time, it was 1950. The previous Rebbe just passed away. The Rebbe wasn't officially the Lubavitcher Rebbe at the time, but he said, the son-in-law is there. Let me go ask the Rebbe for some advice. He comes to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe looks at him and says, do you understand? And he says, the Rebbe was an engineer, so the Rebbe electrical engineer stood cars better than he did. He said, in every single car, there's about 250 different parts. And every single one of those parts needs a different type of mechanic or engineer or per contract to build. You bring this factory to Israel, imagine the amount of jobs and economically what you can do to the people. A, from having schools to teach them about it, for workers doing it, and the amount of infrastructure. Just go ahead and do it. And with that, he was able to sleep better night, he signed a contract, and within a few years, they became a third of the largest uh, manufacturing. It was a, called Kaiser Fries or something of that nature or something. It was a Holland car that they made and that was the, and they were at the time making for most cars in Europe were being made in Israel. And this became one of the biggest anchors of the economy in Israel to build it up. What we see over here is very clearly he said that sometimes there's so many challenges standing in front of us and it blurs the picture. And we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, what are we being afraid of? We're not being afraid of anything but fear itself. And if we just take one item on the list and to be able to pinpoint it and tackle it with faith and belief that it all work out, automatically those fears dissipate. And at that time, as I said, 28% of all cars that were made in Brazil, Colombia, even Turkey, France, Sweden, were all made by this company. The same idea is also that Moses was telling the Jewish people in the book of Deuteronomy. What was Moses telling the Jewish people? Yes, the nations of the world look stronger than you. Yes, they look larger than you. They have fortified cities and everything else. But there's one thing that they don't have, which is faith in God. The very fact that a Jew has faith in God, this will give him the ability to overcome any obstacle at any time. Is he saying that they're not, fit, not there? That's not what Moses was saying. Moses wasn't oblivious to the, to the angst and to the anxiousness that the Jewish people may have. On the contrary, as to today they say in modern day psychology, you have to validate. He validated their fears. He said, yes, you have what to be fearful for. He didn't push it aside like one who goes to war. He said, yes, there's a fear, but you know what? You have God that's beyond it.
and therefore you have nothing to worry about it. One of the things that it says in the Talmud, it says that when God's uh, putting together a shidduch, making a match, is just as difficult as the splitting of the sea. Why the splitting of the sea out of all things? Why not the, as give, giving the Torah and Ten Commandments? So what, what, what does a man and a woman coming together have to do with the splitting of the sea? And there's many who explain the concept, and the Rebbe says, is that what happened when the splitting of the sea happened? How did the sea split? Did it automatically, all of a sudden, 12 canals split? It happened because one Jew, by the name of Nachshon ben Aminadav, decided that he's going to take a leap of faith, jumped into the water, and because of that, everything split. The same idea is also when it comes to putting up a home or to doing anything which seems out of this world. A person's going to say, I have to wait until I'm comfortable with it, until I see it so clearly and everything else. That's never going to happen. You'll never be 100% sure. You'll never be perfect. You'll never be 100% positive. Certain things in life demand a leap of faith. And that leap of faith is able to get you to places you never imagined. And not only that, when we take that leap of faith, that leap of faith with absolute solace and serenity, recognizing that this is the right decision, it's not that all of a sudden I'm becoming oblivious. To I know the fears, but that leap of faith is able to make those two walls of the water split the sea, and that's what actually gives you the ability to overcome it. So what we see from over here in this week's Torah reading, we learn two things. Number one, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And even if it means that you need to rebuke somebody for something that they've done wrong, think about not only what you're going to tell them, but how you're going to tell them. You might be able to rebuke somebody in public and think, is that going to have an effect or is it going to backfire? And even if you're going to tell them in private, how are you going to tell to them? You know, what's the impact that it's going to make? Is it really coming from your heart? Do you really mean it? Of course. You have to rebuke, you're going to say, the Torah says I should rebuke. But the question is, what is that? What's the impact of the rebuke? How are you going to say the rebuke? Should I send the text or shouldn't I send the text? What is the text going to mean if I send it the wrong way? Or if they may read it the wrong way? Is it going to achieve the results or might backfire? The same idea is also, when we need to make decisions in our life, and we need the courage to stand up to a very difficult time, and to a very challenging time, what's the way we have courage? Is it being oblivious of our fears? Absolutely not. Is it pushing off our fears and saying, ah, don't worry about it, I have a greater cause? Absolutely not. It's taking on the fear, recognizing, yes, there is what to be fearful, but I know that God is on my side, and I know that I'll be successful, because God, I trust and God will make me be successful. This is what the opportunities that God gives us. Because when we take that approach, we automatically have a, it's the recipe for success. In most cases, why are people afraid of doing any new endeavor? Is because they're afraid, that's the exact word. And even if they're gonna be oblivious of the fear, at one point in time, it might catch up to them. If they push up the, or push off the fear, Okay, so they were able to make the first five phone calls or they were able to do the first five appointments, but then all of a sudden, it still might get to them. But if they recognize and validate the fear, but recognize also they are coming with a greater armory, which is faith in God, and that's why they'll be successful. Fear doesn't matter anymore. 
In fact, it works in their favor because it propels them to go to a place which they've never been to, which is faith. And when we have faith and belief in God, see split and we're able to see the miracles. The mistake of the, of the spies were they forgot the faith. The advantage that we have today is that Moses gave us that faith. Moses gave us that faith within the end of Deuteronomy telling us the nations of the world are stronger, they're fortified cities. He wasn't just talking about physical nations that today around also in the land of Israel. He was talking about the evil inclination. He was talking about the temptations of the world. Yes, they're there around us and they may be tempting. But God gives you the godly inclination. He gives us the Torah that gives us the possibility that we're able to split the seas and overcome all the enemies around us. Amazing.